you do turn back to the passage that we uh, read together, or the two passages that we read together, in Joshua 13 and Joshua 14. Now, if you've been meeting with us here at LCPC for a while, you'll know uh, that every now and again, uh, we've been returning and dipping into uh, this intermittent series in the book of Joshua. It's been a little while since we were here last, however, so it's worth reminding ourselves, what is the theme of the book? Back in Genesis chapter 15 promised Abraham that his descendants would live in the land in which he was then standing. Abraham, you remember, was just a nomad in the land, but God promised that he would have a settled inheritance for his descendants there in that very place. And we call it the promised land for just that reason, don't we? Because It was promised by God to Abraham, even though at that time he was old and he had no children. But although God made this promise to Abraham, the Lord also revealed that his descendants wouldn't receive it immediately. Rather, Abraham was told that his descendants would be taken into captivity in Egypt. And then only after 400 years would God finally deliver on his promise, bringing them out of Egypt and back into the promised land. Fundamentally then, the book of Joshua is a a book which uh, explains how God fulfilled his promise, how he gave the children of Israel this inheritance. Now, If you were here last time we were here, you might remember that we said that the book of Joshua is a bit like a play, which is in two halves. Chapters 1 to 11 comprise Act 1, and they describe how the Israelites conquered the promised land. And it contains some of those dramatic stories that you might have been taught at Sunday school or might know from the past. Episodes like crossing the Jordan on the dry land, Rahab hiding the spies, the destruction of Jericho with the walls coming tumbling down, and the unanticipated defeat at Ai. But as the first act ended, it seemed as if the conquest was complete. The curtain fell, as it were, at the end of chapter 11, With these words, the land rested from war. Well, we then have what you might call a sort of a biblical interval. Time to stretch your legs or get an ice cream. For in 12, we have a summary of the plot thus far. Much like you might read in the program of a play. But then as we move on into chapter 13... Curtains rising again for the second half. And our attention is drawn to the scene in front of us. 
Rather than an account of how the Israelites conquered the land, however, this second half is an account of how the Israelites received the land, received the inheritance that they had been promised. Now, if you do a search on Sermon Audio or some other platform, you quickly realize that far fewer sermons are preached on the second half of Joshua than the first half. And as you read Joshua chapters 13 to 19, you quickly realize why. Because rather than the fast-moving action of Act 1, these chapters have got long lists of names and step-by-step descriptions of the borders of the land which each tribe inherited. One commentator has observed in despair that many of the names aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And we don't know precisely where they were anyway. What are you supposed to make of a portion of scripture like this? Well, it's easy to skim over bits of the Bible, isn't it, like this, and or even miss them out altogether. But Paul tells us that All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for our instruction. So we mustn't avoid them too quickly. Now, as with many of the historicals of the Old Testament, the book of Joshua is full of typology, pictures of truth. So in many ways, Joshua is a type or a picture of Jesus because he conquers sin and leads his people. So too, the promised land is a type or a picture of the many blessings which God bestows on those who trust in him. And the experiences of the Israelites as they lived in the promised land mirrors in many ways the experience that we have living as Christians today. Well, we're not going to look at these chapters verse by verse, but what I hope do we can do is focus on just three truths that we find here at the beginning of this second part of the book of Joshua. We can look at three maxims for life, if you like, three maxims for the Christian life, three points to help us as we seek to serve our Lord and Saviour. There are caution against complacency, a cause for contentment and a consideration of the inheritance received. Caution against complacency, a cause for contentment and a consideration of the inheritance received. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1, and we see a caution against complacency. Now, Joshua was old. And advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land to possess. I wonder if that verse seems surprising to you at the beginning of this section of the book of Joshua. Isn't there a disconnect? Because at the end of chapter 11, didn't it say that the land rested from war. Act 1, you see, had ended on a high. Didn't that mean that the battle had been won? 
Well, to understand what's going on here, we need to appreciate that although Joshua had defeated the long list of kings in chapter 12, Israel had not yet taken full possession of the land. And indeed, uh, the, uh, the verses 2 to 6 that we navigated through without tripping up too badly, the verses 2 to 6 describe the land by reference to the various tribes who were still living there. The land hadn't been properly settled by Israel. It was still occupied by the various Canaanite tribes, even though their armies had been routed and defeated. So you see, although the Israelites had been victorious, it's as if there was still a a resistance movement There were partisans who could potentially frustrate or hinder the new occupying nation as they sought to enjoy the land, the inheritance that had been promised to them by God. One commentator expresses this as an already but not yet action in the text. Yes, God had already given the victory to Joshua, but their enjoyment of the land was not yet complete. In a very real sense, the battle had already been won. Joshua had obtained a great victory. God's enemies had been defeated. But on the other hand, Israel had not yet taken full possession of what God had promised them 400 years earlier. And the presence of the Canaanites was still being felt by the Israelites as they settled into the land. And indeed, by the time the book of Joshua was written, it seems that they were still a cause of angst, disrupting Israel's life in the land If you look on in chapter 13, at verse 13, we read that on the east side of the Jordan, the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day, at the time the book was written. Things weren't even any better on the west side of the Jordan either, for further on in chapter 14, verse 63, we read that the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. Go on into chapter 16 and verse 10, and we read, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza, so the Canaanites have lived in Giza to this day. And again, go on a bit further. Chapter 17, verse 12, we read, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. So you see, although Joshua had won the victory and the land rested from war, there was still land which hadn't been taken fully under the control of Israel. But this already not yet tension isn't unique to Israel, is it? As Christians today... This is our experience of salvation. In a very real sense, the battle has already been won. At the cross on Calvary, a great victory has already been obtained 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of both death and sin were defeated. Every sin we have ever committed, every sin we will ever commit, every sin we commit even now is being taken from us and has been taken as far as the east is from the west. Already, the Lord Jesus Christ has become sin for us and God's wrath has been poured out on him in our place. Already, he has taken punishment for our sin. And not only have we been forgiven, the Bible tells us that a a remarkable transformation has taken place. We've been taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This has already happened. Not only that, but if we're Christians, the Bible tells us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We've become fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. This has already happened. The Bible tells us that we have an advocate, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf in the very throne room of heaven. This has already happened. If we're Christians, we also have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, giving us understanding as we read the Scriptures, sanctifying our hearts, producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. If you're a Christian today, then along with the Apostle Paul, you can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Why? Because Christ has already done this. This is the already of our Christian lives. But we also know that the not yet in our Christian experience, don't we? We feel the not yet when we succumb to temptation and we struggle with besetting sins. We feel the not yet when we become distracted from Christ by life's aspirations or worldly responsibilities or our concerns and burdens for others. We feel the the not yet of our Christian life when our affection for Christ goes through periods of coolness, perhaps when we struggle to pray or we, we neglect reading the Bible and meditating on his word. We feel the not yet in our faith when the wonderful realities of salvation, they lose their perspective and we become overwhelmed by anxieties about other things. This is the reality of the Christian life, isn't it? And already, and not yet, we have been saved, but we await our final salvation. We have Christ already, but we don't yet possess him as we will one day when we see him face to face. And in the meantime... We live in the already but not yet. 
and share a similar experience to these Israelites. The forces of hell have been overcome, but we must still engage in spiritual warfare. And God's word to us is the same today as it was to Joshua here in verse 1. You are old and advanced in years, and there remains much land to possess. There's an urgency about this command, isn't there? Come on, Joshua, don't be complacent. You're getting old. You haven't got many years left. So you need to keep focused. You need to keep pressing on. There's much land to be possessed. And isn't the same message true for us today? We can't afford to be complacent. Yes, Christ has won a great victory. But we need to keep focused on him. Resist the devil. Flee temptation. Work out your own salvation. Well, if that's a cause, uh, a caution against complacency, uh, we read on in verse 6 of chapter 13 and find a cause for contentment. Second half of verse 6. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, you may remember, um, if you've read this bit of the Bible, that when Israelites first came to Canaan from Egypt... Two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, decided that they wanted to settle on the east side of the River Jordan, along with half of the tribe of Manasseh. And indeed, uh, verses 8 to the end of chapter 13 is a sort of an interlude, a diversion, which describes how that bit of the land was apportioned to them on the east bank of the Jordan River. In verse 7, however, Joshua was commanded to allot the land on the west bank of the Jordan to the remaining nine tribes and the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, who hadn't settled on the east bank. And it's worth pausing for a minute to think about how this was done. The instructions about it were originally given to Moses, and you can read them back in the book of Numbers in chapter 26. But if we move on beyond this interlude, beyond this diversion to the beginning of chapter 14, we read how Joshua followed those instructions. Look what it says at the beginning of chapter 14. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, when Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of the Moses for the nine and a half tribes. The land was to be allotted by lot. We don't know precisely how this was done, but it's noticeable that Eliezer is described there in verse 1 as being there. He was involved. 
And part of the priest's attire involved two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And God had appointed that these should be used by Israel to determine the will of God. God is sovereign. And the process of selection of one stone or the other to understand God's will, that process was understood to have been controlled by God. So in Proverbs 16, verse 33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Matters determined then by the Urim and the Thummim were beyond dispute. They weren't decided by the whim of man or pressure from one of the parties, a bribe. Neither they were, were they the result of mere chance, but the outcome had been determined by God himself. So do you see the reason why Joshua was told to lock the land by this method? Well, as the decision concerning who received what was determined by God, there was no room argument, was there, about how the land had been apportioned. And again, in Proverbs 18, verse 18, we read this, casting lots causes contentions cease and keeps the mighty apart. So by using a process of lots then, Israel recognized God's providence in the inheritance allotted to each tribe. The land was God's to give, and God alone decided who got what. So you see, there was no room for boasting, was there? No one had earned a particular part of the land, for it was an inheritance freely given by God. On the other hand, neither was there any reason for complaint. For There was no basis for murmuring and no excuse to look enviously at what someone else had got. Indeed, there's only one instance here in this section where a tribe appears to question the allocation made. And in chapter 17, the tribe of Manasseh questions what's allocated to them. And they're given short shrift. They're they're rebutted very, very quickly. But what practical lesson can we learn for this, for our Christian life today? Well, friends, in some ways, this is a tough lesson. But surely it teaches us to be cautious about questioning the providence of God. There are some people in our congregation who are going through difficult times at the moment. And this passage is not an excuse for fatalism. If we face a difficulty, then it's quite right that we pray to God for relief. And it's also right that we should pray for one another, bearing one another's burdens. And at times, friends, we need to plead with God as we seek his help for our brothers and sisters in a time of need. This passage reminds us that ultimately the Lord is sovereign in choosing our inheritance. Events and circumstances in our lives are not just down to the whim of man. 
and they're not down to mere chance. God rules over our lives, bringing his will to pass. And although it may be hard at times, this gives us reason to find peace in a difficult season. It gives us cause to be content with our lot. I don't know if you noticed the words of Psalm 16, which we've just sung. It's only with the eye of faith, trusting in God's providence, that no matter what the circumstances, we can sing verse 6. The land allotted me is in a pleasant sight, and surely my inheritance is a delight. Proverbs reminds us that the lot cast in, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And we may not understand what good purpose the Lord has in it, but we can be assured that there is. And we have every confidence then to say with Paul that all things work together for our God, our good and God's glory. So we've got a caution against complacency and we've got a cause for contentment. But lastly, we've got a consideration of the inheritance received. Now, if you work your way through Joshua chapters 13 to 19, we read of the various allotments of land to the different tribes of Israel. But there's one exception. I wonder if you notice it in uh, chapter 14, verse 4, as we read it. No portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. I don't know about you, is is that quite surprising? The Levites were the tribe who were specifically tasked with priestly duties. For Israel, their role was central to the life of the nation. They organized the tabernacle, they arranged the sacrifices, and they supervised the worship of the Lord. It was God who was bestowing the inheritance on the land, in the land, to his people. Surely those most involved in the religious life of the nation would have been worthy of a special allocation. Well, God's ways are not our ways, and he had a different plan. Yes, they were given cities to live in, and they were given fields for their livestock and for food, but these were spread throughout the other 11 tribes. They weren't given any particular portion of the land for themselves. In verse 3 of uh, chapter 14, in verse 3 we're told that they had no inheritance on the east bank of the Jordan. While in verse 4 we're told that they had none on the west bank either. I wonder if you'd been a Levite, how you would have felt about that. Would you have felt bit short-changed. But as we read further in these chapters, we realize that they weren't short-changed at all. 
Back in chapter 13, we we didn't read that section, but uh, buried in there in verse 8, all the way through, sorry, from verse 8 through to the end of the uh, of, of chapter 13, we have this allocation of the land on the east bank of the Jordan. But buried there in verse 14 of that section, we read this. No inheritance was given to the Levites, but it goes further. And it says, the offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance. See, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, God had ordained the Levites should receive a share of the offerings and sacrifices made to the Lord at the tabernacle. Not only that, but they also shared in the produce that the other tribes harvested. Moses commanded that the Levites should be given the first fruits of the grain, the first fruits of wine and of oil and of wool. So you see, although they had no inheritance in the land, the other tribes of Israel provided for them. But there's more than that, isn't there? For the duties of the Levites were to serve in the tabernacle. The sacrifices, you see, were were more than just a source of food for the Levites. They were the ones who were engaged in the temple worship. And in doing so, they had a privilege far greater than any portion of land they might have had. As they served in the temple, in in the tabernacle, before them were played out rituals which opened to them truths of the gospel. Remember the tabernacle with the most holy of holies, through that they were shown the holiness of God. The fact they couldn't approach the most holy of holies told them that they were sinful and in need of cleansing. And then day by day, season by season, as the sacrifices were offered, they were shown that to deal with their sin, they needed the sacrifice of another. None of the other tribes had this privilege. There's a sense then in which the the offerings and sacrifices were a privilege that they had far above the allotment of any land. But there's more. Because the ultimate reason that the Levites did not need an inheritance in the promised land, is told us in chapter 13 at the end, in verse 33. And there we read some quite profound words. To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. I said earlier that the promised land, which was allotted to Israel, was a type or a picture of the many blessings which God bestows upon those who trust in him. Just go back to Genesis 15. Remember that original promise that was given to Abraham 
God said to Abraham that he would give him that land. But the context in which that promise had been given to Abraham was that before that, the Lord had said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. The promise of the land then, in a sense, was just to confirm and to show and to demonstrate to Abraham that truth that the Lord was his. Do you know when a couple get married, they, there's a giving and receiving of rings. And the gift of the ring is a sign that the person is giving themselves to the other. And there's a sense in which the promised land, which was promised to Abraham, was just a sign of the fact that God was giving himself to Abraham. He was covenanting with Abraham. There's a sense in which the tribe of Levi didn't need the land of possession because they had something better than the type or or picture of a blessing from God. They didn't need the type or the picture because they had the real thing. In a special way, Moses said, the tribe of Levi have God himself. And what was true for the Levites is true for us. If you're a Christian here this morning, this passage tells you the same Remarkable truth. The Lord God is your inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, Paul tells us the same thing. Paul tells us that we have received an inheritance in Christ. See the point? He's been given to us. John 3.16 tells that God so loved the world that he, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son to us. When Christ died for us on the cross that our sins might be forgiven, he gave himself to us. He is the one who was promised and he is the one who is now given to us. The Lord Jesus Christ himself then, if we're a Christian, is in a very real sense our inheritance is of great, much greater value, far greater value than anything else. Career, family, prosperity, even health. What does Paul say? They're nothing. It's rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing the Lord Jesus, our inheritance. But friends, that raises an important question, doesn't it? What will you do? What will you do with that inheritance that God gives or offers you? Many years ago, um, I, uh, I was told a story by an old minister. I'm sure it was apocryphal, uh, but it's a good story anyway. And it's told that there was a young man who was traveling from England to America. But in those days, you didn't do it by 
aeroplane. In those days, you traveled by boat, by liner. And uh, one evening, this young man went out onto deck to get some fresh air. Uh, And as he looked around, he, he saw at the front of the boat, there was another young man. And he saw something sparkling just above him. And so he went to investigate. And uh, when he got there, he found there was this young man who had a large diamond that he was playing with. And the young man explained that he had received a wonderful inheritance. And with it, he had bought a diamond and he was traveling to America to invest it and earn his fortune. And as they stood there talking, the young man was just playing with this diamond. But all of a sudden, a big wave came. The boat jolted, and the diamond slipped between his fingers into the sea. Friends, what will you do with the inheritance, the wonderful inheritance the tremendous inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you hold on to him tightly? Will you treasure him for yourself? Or will you let him slip between your fingers? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Uh, the tremendous, wonderful inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. One who is indeed uh, most wonderful, most precious, able to save us from our sins, able to keep us until that day when we meet you and see you face to face. We pray, Lord, for all of us. Uh, that we might uh, receive that inheritance in the gospel uh, and treasure it and enjoy it and be blessed by it, even to the end of our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.